So last week, um, for our sermon series, we finished up going through uh, the letter of James. And so this week, we're going to start a very brief series that's going to take us right up to Christmas. Um, we're, it's going to be a five-week-long little series, Advent series, as we prepare for uh, Christmas. And um, it's going to be from this I think a familiar passage, but it's from Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Um, It's one of the suffering servant songs in Isaiah. And um, and the reason I want us to look at it over the next uh, few weeks together as we head into Christmas is because I think this is one of the most important um, and clearest passages in the Bible that tells us why... Jesus came. But um, yeah, so this passage, it tells us why he came, why he took on flesh, why he suffered, why he died. Um, Now, Isaiah 52 through 53, um, it is a song. And like a song, it has stanzas and it breaks into, believe it or not, five stanzas. And we have five weeks, so it works out perfectly. and um, but so here's what I want to do uh, this morning. You have Isaiah 52 verse 13 through 15 printed in your bulletin there, and I'm going to read that. But I'm also because this is the first Sunday, I want to read the whole song together at once. Um, so you might want to take your Bible and turn to that passage because I'm going to keep reading through Isaiah 53, or or pull it up on your phone so that you can follow along, or or just listen along. Either way will be fine. Um, And then we'll get to talking about this first stanza in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. So let's give our attention to God's holy and inerrant word. Um, Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall He sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Now Isaiah 53. Who has believed what He has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. 
And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. As Isaiah says elsewhere, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Father, you you know each of us in this room. And you know what's going on in our lives at this very moment. And you know how we've come through these doors. We've all come from different places, dealing with different things in our lives. Some enter this room surprised that they find themselves in a church this morning. Um, Others with doubts um, and skeptical of the truth of this Word. And yet others excited uh, to be with your people and to hear you speak. Um, Some of us believing but struggling with unbelief. Others of us struggling hard with besetting sins, um, finding um, this life wearisome and tiresome. Father, however we come this morning, we pray that You would open all of our eyes by Your Spirit. That you would reveal to us this morning that that the symptoms may look different in our lives. Um, Underneath it all, we're all the same. Because we are all far more broken and sinful and corrupt and twisted than we could ever imagine. And so together we need to be reminded that because of Jesus, His person and work, we can also be at the very same time more loved and more accepted and more approved of and more delighted in than we could have ever dared dream was possible. And Father, we pray that this good news, um, that it would be proclaimed to us this morning and that we would be transformed by it. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I love... Puzzles. Um, uh, in fact, the the only games on my cell phone are are puzzles, uh, Sudoku, uh, wordscapes, picto words, stuff like that. Uh, even the old classic Minesweeper. Um, it's on there too. Um, I love doing the also the classic jigsaw puzzles. You know, empty the box on the dining room table and. And fit the picture together even more abstractly. I think I, I gravitate towards kind of watching 
movies and television that are, that are puzzles, that are mysteries, right? Things like uh, Sherlock Holmes and stuff like that. Um, but puzzles, no matter the form they come in, they're all about figuring out how the different pieces fit together, right? Taking pieces or words or clues or whatever they may be that initially appear uh, disjointed, that initially appear um, irreconcilable, maybe, um, and figuring out how to fit those pieces together. It's taking what seems irreconcilable uh, and sometimes contrasting even and fitting those pieces together. Now, in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, Isaiah wrote, Behold my servant. Um, Behold means look at. Consider. Fix your eyes upon this servant. And I think Isaiah wants us to see and he wants us to wonder at this puzzling servant that he presents for us in the last few verses of Isaiah 52. Um, Because if you look at those verses, you see on the one hand, we're told in those verses that this servant acts wisely. And that because of that, he will be high and lifted up and he will be exalted. Uh, And it's a picture of triumph and success and uh, being exalted, right? It's reward. Um, But on the other hand, we're told that the servant will suffer and be broken and beaten and marred beyond human semblance. And that's not a picture of triumph or reward. That's a picture of crushing defeat and utter rejection. And that's the puzzle. How can this servant who lived wisely and perfectly and therefore should be loved and accepted by God, how is it that his life also at the same time appears to be proof of God's dissatisfaction with him, of God's rejection of him. And this is one of life's great puzzles for us. How can suffering and pain and the hardness of life, how how can it be compatible with and reconciled To the perfect love of God. Two contrasting pictures that feel irreconcilable. And that's the puzzle. So I want us to talk through this puzzle in three points this morning. I want us to talk about the troubling question that comes in our suffering. And I want us to talk about the limited perspective that we have in our suffering. And then finally, I want us to talk about how we can bring a gospel perspective into our suffering. Okay, I'll repeat those as we go. I know that's, that's a lot. But first, the troubling question in life suffering. I want us to do our best in this first point to be, to be honest about this troubling question. And, and, and here it is again. Why? Why would a loving and all-powerful God Allow us to suffer. 
How do we reconcile the experience of suffering and evil in this life with a God who is all-loving and all-powerful? Um, and it could be that you're asking that question in a very personal way this morning. Um, but even if you're not, it's definitely a question that your friends are struggling with. And it's a very honest question. So let's think about this troubling question both globally and personally. And I want you to hear this globally troubling question um, as it's stated by uh, one of the leading critics of Christianity in America right now. Uh, Bart, Bart Ehrman, uh, who's a professor of religious studies at UNC Chapel Hill, he puts it this way. My view is that it is impossible to reconcile the pain and misery all about us. And then he gives examples. The millions of children in Africa dying of AIDS and malaria. The millions of others dying because they're forced to drink unclean water. The countless others dying from natural disasters, hurricanes, tsunamis, droughts, famine. It's impossible to reconcile the pain and misery all about us, he says, if there is a good and all-powerful God in charge of the world. See, what he's saying is he's saying the puzzle is irreconcilable. And his argument goes this way. Either God is loving, but he's not powerful enough to stop the suffering and the evil. Or God is powerful, but he's certainly not loving because he allows suffering in this life. See, it's a globally troubling question. It's a philosophically troubling question. Why would a God who is perfectly loving and all-powerful allow suffering? And that's a very honest and difficult question. This troubling question, it's at the heart of this puzzle in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Now, let me leave that for a second, because I also want us to bring this troubling question down into our very real and personal experience. Because some of us in this room are in the midst of life's troubles right now, suffering and feeling like our lives are, are crumbling and breaking to pieces and experiencing real hurt. For others of us, I, I know things are going great right now. You had a great Thanksgiving. Um, and there doesn't appear to be any trouble at the moment. But you know people who are suffering. How, how are you going to come alongside that and bring hope? And, and let me add this. If you think your life is great right now, it, it probably is. Um, but just give it a little time. Um, it, because pain and suffering and sorrow, they're unavoidable in this life. You are living in reality if you feel like you can ignore this question. Eventually, this troubling question deals with us all personally. And I want us to admit it. When we're, when we're personally confronted with suffering, our question isn't that far removed from Bart Ehrman's question. You know, whether it comes in the form of financial hardship or relational trials or the experience of death or loss or illness or loving someone who's caught in an addiction or some, facing some crushing disappointment in your life or a host of other sorrows, when suffering enters our lives, what's the first question on our lips? So why? Why is this happening? Why would God let this happen? 
And you know what? You're not alone in asking that. Because God's people have always struggled with this question. And this puzzle. Right, just listen to some prayers recorded in the Psalms. I'll just give you a few of them. Psalm 10 verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 42 verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Psalm 43 verse 2. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Psalm 44. Awake, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? It's personally troubling. In suffering, it feels like we've been abandoned. Like God's turned His back on us. Like He's fallen asleep on us. As the psalmist writes, in our moment of struggle and pain and suffering, like God's walked away. From his promise to love and deliver us. I, I love, one of my favorite things to watch on YouTube um, is the people getting scared compilations. Um, I know there's a lot wrong with me, and this is just one more proof of that. But Jennifer and, and the kids and I, I love to pull up these things on the TV and watch these people getting scared. We just die laughing. Um, whether the prank's elaborate or it's just somebody coming around the corner and somebody's scared because just the terrified facial expressions. Um, you know, there's some people who jump and scream. Some people run away. Some people are ready to fight um, and they're angry. Some people just get paralyzed and frozen in their fear. And it just cracks me up. Um, because in that moment um, of getting scared, a person's most fundamental instincts just take over. It's pure fight or flight, right? And you get to see it. Um, you know, one guy gets scared and he instinctively swings a punch, you know, at his friend. Or the next guy screams like a little girl. Uh, or someone's eyes get huge and they're just, they're frozen with fear and you hope they remember to breathe. Um, but, okay, all that said, now come back to this troubling question in our suffering. I think the reason the Bible gives us all these examples of people asking why in the midst of our suffering is because it is the most fundamental instinctive question to ask. We're caught in the puzzle. And we cry out, why? Why would a good loving, all-powerful God allow suffering? Why? Why does it feel like God's so far? Why does it seem like He's sleeping, right? Why does it feel like He's forgotten me, like He's rejected me? Now listen, I'm going to unfairly leave this point and just kind of let us sit with the question a bit longer, but I also want you to realize that, that I think this question comes up instinctively. It's our gut response to suffering. Because there is something deep inside our natures, in our humanity, that tells us this isn't right. Right? I can't remember if it was Lewis or or Tolkien, but, but one of them called pain suffering, pain and suffering an unwelcome intruder into our world. We weren't built for pain and suffering. 
This is not the way the world was meant to be. And suffering brings that question, why, into extreme sharp focus for us. All right, second, let's keep going. Consider the limited perspective in our suffering. It's so hard for us to acknowledge in the midst of suffering, but because we're human, like we just said, and because we're finite, we bring a limited perspective into our suffering. Again, the Bible is filled with examples of this, and they are meant for your comfort when your perspective is so clouded and limited in suffering. And I just want to share with you two brief examples here in this point. In Mark chapter 5, there's a story about a synagogue ruler named Jairus who came to Jesus. And he begged him to come and help his little 12-year-old daughter who was dying. And so Jesus went with Jairus. But if you read that story, on the way, Jesus stopped. He was traveling with a crowd, and there was a crowd around him. And a woman in that crowd who had this chronic illness, for 12 years she had been bleeding, and she touched Jesus, and she was healed. And Jesus stopped the crowd, and he stopped going to Jairus' house. Right? And he looked for this woman, and he found her, and he had a conversation with her. And even the disciples, when you read this account, they're frustrated with Jesus. Why is he stopping? In this crowd, how could you stop and look for one person? But he did. And in the meantime, servants from Jairus' house came up to him and said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any further? Can you imagine what Jairus must have felt with his limited perspective in that moment? I mean, Jesus could have saved her. But he stopped to look for her and talk to this woman, and now my daughter is dead. And maybe Jairus was thinking, this is malpractice. Right? Stopping to heal a chronic issue when when a girl with an acute crisis is dying. And Jesus obviously knew what Jairus, Jairus was feeling and thinking. It's why when Jairus heard the news, it wasn't Jairus who spoke first, but Jesus who spoke first. And he immediately turned to him and he said, do not fear, only believe. Because you see, Jairus didn't know what Jesus knew. His perspective was limited. Jairus had come to Jesus for a healing, but Jesus wanted to give him a resurrection from the dead, which is better by far. And that's exactly how the story played out. Jesus went to Jairus' daughter and he raised her from the dead. You know, it's so humbling to realize in suffering When I become anxious and fearful and angry in the midst of my suffering, to realize that it's because I'm looking at my life and I'm saying, I am certain of how my life should go. 
And I'm certain Jesus is getting it wrong at this moment. Surely Jairus felt that. I think one reason God gave us this story is to say to us, our perspective is limited in our suffering. And it's to ask us this question, why would you ever want to hurry someone this powerful and this loving? Someone who loves to give you not just a healing, but a resurrection from the dead. A second story that highlights the limited perspective in our suffering is the story of Joseph in Genesis. Um, A lot of you might be familiar with that story. Joseph was hated by his brothers who wanted to kill him, but they decided at the last moment that they would profit from his life instead. And so they sold him as a slave. And Joseph wound up as a slave in Egypt. But then he was thrown in prison for something like 20 years of his life. 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. What do you think think Joseph was thinking about in that jail cell? Where is God? But then Joseph, the story goes on, was noticed by Pharaoh and he's placed in a position of power in Egypt to prepare for a famine. And because of his position, Joseph was able to rescue from the famine the very brothers who had betrayed him. And from those brothers came the nation of Israel. And from the nation of Israel eventually came Jesus, who came not just to deliver Israel, but to deliver the whole world. I mean, only decades after being sold as a slave and a victim of injustice, did Joseph find enough perspective to say to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let me add this. It's hard to read the story of Joseph, or at least it's hard for me to read the story of Joseph in Genesis, and not feel at least a little bit of sympathy for his brothers. I mean, Joseph was an arrogant, spoiled, tattletelling little kid who regularly bragged to his brothers about how one day they would bow down to him. Not only was God saving a nation through Joseph's suffering, but God was saving Joseph through suffering. God was changing and transforming him from his proud self-absorption into a humble, wise, and compassionate man who could look at his brothers years later and say to them, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. Listen, our perspective, it's extremely limited in life's suffering. You don't know how God's using the trouble and suffering in your life, or in the lives of others, or in His unfolding redemptive history. Even if you could, can see a piece of His purpose like Joseph did, you can't see the whole. Listen, if we're really finite creatures, limited knowledge and wisdom, doesn't it make perfect sense that our perspective would be limited? I mean, if that's who we are, it should make sense that there wouldn't be an answer for every question in our suffering. One night, um, when one of my daughters was, she was two years old, I took her out in the backyard to see the 
super moon um, that was out. It was huge. It was bright and beautiful, full moon. And I remember holding her in the backyard and showing her, her the moon. And, and I, I remember her stretching her little hand out and saying, Daddy, I want to touch it. I want to touch it. Um, now listen, in that moment, I didn't panic uh, or become worried about her depth perception or her mental development. She's turned out just fine. Um, I knew. <laughs> she didn't know what I knew. Namely that the moon was like 230-something thousand miles away. Right? I just figured she's two. And, a two -year, and as a two-year-old, your world is limited to what you can comprehend. And listen, the gap between her comprehension and mine as an adult has to be a million times smaller than the gap that exists between our comprehension of the world as finite creatures and the understanding of an infinite God. In suffering, you know what God is often doing with us? He's pounding the self-righteousness out of our hearts that assumes we always know what we need and how our lives should go. He won't be hurried in the gifts He brings through suffering in our lives or in the lives of others or in His unfolding plan of redemption. And I'm not suggesting it's easy to wait, but we have to remind ourselves of our very limited perspective in life suffering. All right, third and finally, we're going to talk more directly about Isaiah 52. Um, so let's talk about how to bring the perspective of the cross into life suffering at this point. We have real, hard, honest questions about why God would allow the people He loves to suffer. And there are some good points that the Bible makes in addressing those questions. I'm not going to get it into them right now. Because I think the main way God responds to us with that question isn't with bullet points, but with something or someone to look upon. Verse 13, God says, Behold my servant. Look at him. Consider him. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the suffering servant. High and exalted, broken and defeated. Right? Successful and triumphant, crushed and rejected. He came and He lived a life of supreme and ultimate beauty. Fulfilled every righteous requirement of the law. He was the only one to ever love God perfectly with every fiber of His being. And to love his neighbor as himself perfectly and without flaw. His life was a life of perfect beauty and wisdom. He, he alone deserved to be high and lifted up and exalted. Do you remember the scene in, in, in the Gospels when, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River? We're told in the Gospels that the heavens were torn open. And a voice was heard and it was the voice of the Father saying... You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You know what that scene is? It's a picture of a father doting over his son. 
beaming with love and complete satisfaction in him, affirming and confirming his absolute pleasure in his son. Jesus was the delight, he was the apple of his father's eye. But what was the very next thing that happened in Jesus' life? Because every gospel writer records it, what came next. It had to have felt so, the contrast had to feel so sharp that they would all remember it. That immediately after affirming and confirming his absolute pleasure and delight in his son, the father sent his beloved son into the wilderness, into the desert to suffer for 40 days in hunger and fasting. For 40 days of being assaulted and tempted by Satan. Here's what, what that story should be telling you. Hard suffering and the love of God have always gone hand in hand. They always go together. What often seems irreconcilable to us, God fits together like perfectly matched puzzle pieces. Isaiah wrote people would be astonished when they looked at Jesus in verse 14. And listen, that phrase in verse 14 where it says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. This is what Isaiah was saying. That Jesus would experience such intense suffering and torture and disfigurement that if you saw him, you wouldn't just ask, is this the servant who, asked, who acted wisely? Isaiah is saying, you would ask instead, is that even human? Lord, you know, human semblance. The puzzling servant, loved by God, crushed beyond recognition. And for now, Isaiah just gives us a hint in these verses. A hint he's going he's gonna to develop and we'll talk about later in this psalm. But he's giving us a hint to the question, why? Why would God allow his beloved son to come into this world and suffer and die and be crushed like this? Verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. He came to cleanse the nations with his blood. It would be through his suffering that God came to redeem the world. He came and he was... I mean, he was torn to unrecognizable shreds. He came the only man who truly didn't deserve to die. And he came to die in our place. And it's always been this way. I, I, I can show you all throughout the Bible. God always brings salvation through judgment. It doesn't come any other way. Deliverance through suffering. You know, earlier when... I was running through a a few of the Psalms where we get this question, why? Um, There was one that I left out, a very important one, which is Psalm 22, where we hear this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that's the Psalm that Jesus quoted when he was hanging from the cross. And just prior to being hung upon the cross, remember the scene, Pilate, led Jesus before the crowd. And he was wearing a purple robe and a crown of thorns. Puzzled. 
But do you remember what Pilate said to the crowd? He said, Behold the man. Behold the servant. Look at this puzzling servant. Loved by God, forsaken by God. He was born to die to sprinkle many nations with his blood to save the world through his death. Let me end. I'm going to end with a, a quote from John Stott, and then I'll, I'll give you two simple reasons why we celebrate Christmas. Um, but listen, just before I get to this quote, no one escapes this broken world without, facing, without having to face troubling questions in our suffering. Right? And, and our perspective is always going to be limited. But we find this comfort when we behold And look upon Jesus, the suffering servant. God's wise love, in all its mystery, it is perfectly compatible with and reconcilable with suffering. When you suffer, Isaiah is saying, consider Jesus. He doesn't give you a list of bullet points. He gives you a picture of someone who came and suffered for you. John Stott once wrote this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? That lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God's forsaken darkness. This is what John Stott says. That's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. And he entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. You know what Christmas is? Do you know why Christmas is merry and happy? It's a celebration that the puzzling servant that Isaiah prophesied, he came. He really came. And he laid aside his immunity to pain. And he came and he suffered and he died in our place on the cross. On the cross he was forsaken. And listen, because of that, though we continue to wrestle with questions in our suffering, we can at least know this. In our suffering, if we're resting in Jesus, it cannot be, it cannot ever be that He has forsaken us. We may feel forsaken, but never be forsaken because Jesus was forsaken for us. And so with that gospel perspective in our suffering, we can be assured And affirmed and confirmed that God delights in us because of what Jesus has done for us. That He delights in us even as He delights in His own Son. His wise love has always been compatible with suffering and an experience of it. So bring that perspective of the gospel into your suffering and behold the one who came and suffered for you. But here's another reason Christmas is married. For centuries, the church has used the time of Christmas not only to celebrate that Jesus came past tense, 
but to celebrate and anticipate that he will come again. You know, oftentimes I fear we ask the Bible questions, it just wasn't written to answer. You know, we have questions. Why would a loving and all-powerful God allow such evil and suffering in these particular ways to come into my life? But the Bible was written primarily to answer an altogether different question than that. It was answering the question, what is a loving and all-powerful God doing about the evil and suffering in the world? And you see that answer when you behold When you look upon Jesus, what is a loving and all-powerful God doing about the evil and suffering in the world? He sent His Son into the world to conquer evil and suffering and death through His own suffering and death. And one day, someday, He'll come again to fully give us the world as it was meant to be. No more suffering or mourning or pain or tears or death. Forever. And listen... Here's what happens when you can embrace these two reasons that Christmas is married. That Jesus has has come and that He's coming again. You become free. I mean, you're free to know and rest in Jesus knowing that your Father approves and delights in you no matter the circumstances of your life. And you are also free. And this is important. You are free to go the way of your Savior. And you are free to become a puzzle to the world. To suffer patiently under the loving hand of your Father. To suffer for others just as God's own Son suffered for you. Let's pray together.